Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From us this week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi, everyone. Sean here. This is an interlude mini-sode between parts two and three of the Melbourne Gangland Killing series, providing some additional context leading into next week's full-length episode. Today, I'll be talking about a few cases that are often associated with the Melbourne Gangland Killings, occurring during the same time frame we covered in Episode 2, 1999-2002. Vincenzo or Vince Manella immigrated with his parents from Italy to Australia in 1966. He was a teenager at this time. Later in life, Vince would become a labourer and a fruiterer before becoming a fixture at local Carlton and Brunswick cafes and illegal gambling establishments. He had a string of gambling and weapons offences and at one time even shot and wounded a proprietor who had banned him from his coffee house. He did a decent stretch of jail for this offence. He didn't cause police too much trouble. He was described as mid-level, big enough to make a buck, but not draw too much trouble or police attention. But he had been present during raids and had confirmed associations with the likes of Alphonse Gangitano and John Higgs, whom we've mentioned before, allegedly in relation to the sale of chemicals. In 1998, It was said that Vince had been connected to a recent cheese heist in Shepparton. In this heist, the offenders had tried to offload large quantities of cheddar and gouda stolen from the Murray-Goulburn Cheese Co-op to local pizza stores and market outlets. Three other guys eventually pled guilty to the offence in 2001, but Vince wouldn't be around to see that outcome. On the night of January 9th, 1999, Vince, along with his friends, had been at a coffee shop in Ligon Street before heading to a restaurant in Sydney Road before the group decided to head to Elio's Wine Bar in Nicholson Street. Vince drove his blue Ford Fairlane back to his weatherboard home in Alistair Street, North Fitzroy. On his front landing, the sensor light lit up and security camera pointed down at him. It was a decoy though, which had never been connected. Vince was then ambushed and fatally shot in the head. He fell down on the welcome mat. The gunman took off, running along nearby Merry Creek and then up to Albert Street to a pickup point. The killer has never been identified and the media suspected his death was debt-related or part of an underworld power struggle, but no suspects were ever publicly named. Theories suggest he was owed money, similar to Mad Charlie, or that he owed larger amounts to bigger criminals. Death notices remarked that Vince was a good man who'd do anything for others and was a true gentleman. Tragedy would strike the Manella family again on the 20th of October 1999, just 10 months after Vince's murder, when his brother, 31-year-old Gerardo, was shot dead in the middle of the street after leaving their other brother Sal's house in North Fitzroy one evening. The two killers were seen chasing Gerardo down the street 
before cutting him down in a hail of bullets. Gerardo died just two blocks away from where his brother was murdered earlier that year. These two killers have also never been identified and no suspects named publicly. Gerardo was a crane supervisor and had been to a union meeting before heading to his brother's in the afternoon. He had a clean nose for the past seven years. The last offence prior to that was for carrying a pistol. While the two Manella's murders are commonly noted as being part of the gangland killings murder tally and they had criminal records, family believed that the killings were not directly related to the gangland war. It's the widely held belief that the same killers are responsible for both of the brothers' murders. In Gerardo's case, I read talk of him voicing his desire to square up or get revenge for his brother's murder, so perhaps his murder was a preemptive strike. Whatever the case, the killers were well prepared, knowing both brothers' movements, striking at night and with planned getaway routes and vehicles. Frank Benvenuto was an unassuming and polite man, an avid supporter of his local football team, the Beaumaris Sharks. He was there regularly in his long jacket and scarf, supporting silently from the sidelines. During the week, Frank ran a fruit and vegetable stall, and anywhere in between, whispered amongst the stalls and through the club rooms at the footy ground, it was rumoured that Frank was the Melbourne godfather of the Honoured Society an Italian organised crime group akin to the traditional mafia, which operated from fronts within the Melbourne fruit and vegetable industry. As the story goes, Frank, son of Liborio Benvenuto, wasn't deemed acceptable by his own father to take over the throne at the head of the family upon his death of natural causes in 1988. Frank, it was said, was more interested in tending to his pet pigeons. Instead, Laborio offered for his son-in-law Alfonso Muratore to take his place, an offer Alfonso ultimately declined, which left somewhat of a power vacuum within the Honoured Society in Melbourne throughout the 90s. Frank and his brother-in-law Alfonso always had some underlying quibbles, but on face value they got along fine. They were partners in a fruit and veg stall, but things changed when after Liborio's death, Alfonso ended up leaving his wife. Frank's sister, Angela Benvenuto. This was said to be a big deal at the time, as Italian men were at this time expected to have mistresses, but not to leave their wives. Alfonso did for a woman named Karen Mansfield. It was suggested by some that he'd waited for Laborio to pass until he did this, as he wouldn't have stood for it. Financially, things didn't go great for Alfonso after this, and he tried to get back into the fruit and veg business, which didn't please Frank too much. In the end, a gunman shot and killed Alfonso outside his house in 1992, for reasons we can only assume. No one was convicted for the murder, however it was eerily similar to the circumstances of his father Vincenzo's death some years earlier in 1964. So some speculate this led to a further time of uncertainty within the Honoured Society, and it was said in the time after this, Frank engaged the services of some muscle to make things clear who was in charge. One of the men he hired was none other than notorious armed robber and alleged Wall Street police shooter, Victor Pierce. Pierce was one of the sons of Kath Pettengill, matriarch of the notorious Pettengill crime family, and he, alongside three other men, Trevor Pettengill, Anthony Farrell and Peter McAvoy, were charged and acquitted of the 1988 murder of two Victoria police officers, Constable Stephen Tynan, 22, and Damien Eyre, 20. 
Pierce had a reputation as a true underworld heavy, and while he wasn't convicted of the aforementioned murders, he was convicted of armed robbery and drug trafficking. Upon his release from jail, he felt he needed to diversify into protection rackets, debt collecting and standover work, and most likely through the Benvenuto's trusted family advisor, Tom Screever, he was introduced to Frank. There was no mistaking Pierce's reason for being at the markets, when one time he let rip with a machine gun, spraying bullets around the place for no particular reason. He wasn't there for his discerning eye of fresh produce. The seasoned gunman, however, wasn't the only help Frank sought the company of during this time in the 90s. Another much younger upstart had made himself known to the alleged market's godfather, and his name was Andrew Benji Venyaman. Benji proposed to Frank and possibly Des Moran a plan he had to import a bunch of second-hand cars from Japan to on-sell for a profit, there being not much of a second-hand car market in Japan itself. But business acumen didn't appear to be in Benji's skill sets. He could pull a trigger, but evidently not broker a profitable deal. The first importation of cars failed to meet Australian safety standards, and the second were even worse and couldn't be on-sold at all. Frank, however, was still happy to take one of the cars, a Toyota 4Runner. That was until Benji delivered it, and thereafter, Frank discovered it was an utter lemon. He allegedly refused to make the $20,000 payment for it, and instead spent the next little while ducking the young Western suburbanite when he came looking for the cash. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's been alleged that on the 8th of May 2000, Benji finally managed to catch up with Frank Benvenuto when he was departing his Bo Morris home to take a load of trash to the tip. Frank was shot through the neck and killed by someone who got into his car, someone the police say Frank knew and had pulled over to talk with. Frank's last action was to call up his one-time minder, Victor Pierce, a call Pierce later confirmed receiving, saying that Frank just groaned. With Benji a virtual unknown at this time, homicide detectives initially spent a lot of time looking into the possibility that Frank's murder was revenge for the murder of Alfonso Moratore some eight years earlier. But as time went on, that theory was put to one side when police allege intelligence suggested otherwise. If the motive for Frank Benvenuto's murder was the $20,000 debt owed to Benji, It was strange that the $64,000 in Frank's boot was just left and not taken as repayment. Perhaps the shooter had secured payment from elsewhere for the job. On page 184 of their novel Mockbelly, journalists Andrew Rule and John Sylvester outline an intriguing plot, which suggests that shortly after Frank's murder and final call to Victor Pierce, Another Melbourne-based identity, who we may or may not have discussed to this point, made a call to the Pierce household, advising of Frank's death before most people knew of it. This has been denied by said Melbourne identity. At a subsequent court hearing, a secret witness declared that 
Frank had contracted Benji and Victor Pierce to carry out a hit on the aforementioned Melbourne identity, and that upon discovering the plot, he'd convinced Benji via ultimatum to reverse the job and come and work for him, otherwise Benji would end up sleeping with the fishes. It was a theory that police were never able to prove, hence me not naming the identity as it's not fair to do so, but you're welcome to go and read Mockbelly if you want more detail on that. But police remain convinced Benji Venuman was the trigger man. In the meantime, it was said that Victor Pierce was similarly convinced that young Benji was the culprit. But Victor's younger days were well behind him. He was doing more and more of his own gear and dressing like his reputation preceded him. It was almost like he thought he was bulletproof. Victor had apparently made it clear he wasn't going to return fire for Frank Benvenuto's murder. Someone clearly thought otherwise. On Wednesday the 1st of May 2002, Victor had a kick of the footy with his son before leaving his wife Wendy and daughter Katie to go and meet a bloke. He said he'd be back soon and to put the coffee machine on. Victor was in good spirits, having taken a combination of Valium and amphetamines in the time before this. Pierce arrived in Port Melbourne and pulled up outside the Coles supermarket in Bay Street in his 1993 Maroon Holden Commodore. He was unarmed. Soon after, a White Holden Commodore pulled up alongside him, and one of the occupants unloaded three or four bullets into Victor, hitting his liver and lungs. He was revived a couple of times, but ultimately succumbed to his wounds. Jason Moran attended Victor's funeral service in the days after. While in the Underbelly series, it was portrayed that Victor Pierce had accepted a contract to kill Jason Moran before reneging on that and keeping the cash, ending in Carl sending Benji to knock Victor, there's only one part of that equation that's potentially true, and that's that Benji was again the trigger man. The hole in the theory that Carl ordered this was that Carl and Benji hadn't even met at this point, and according to Benji himself, he'd actually accepted a contract to kill Carl from Jason Moran prior to switching sides and becoming Carl's mate. And although it's said that Benji would claim credit for Victor Pierce's murder later on down the track, noting that he'd done it for Carl, it's quite possible he learned later that this had benefited his new friend and money source. It was said that Victor had made a threat against Carl in years gone by, whether that's real, perceived or false, I'm not sure, but it's possible as both were heavily involved in drug trafficking at this time. A more likely scenario, at least according to police in their theory, was that Pierce had been lured to the location by someone he felt safe meeting, not the trigger-happy upstart Benji. Police alleged this man was Vince Benvenuto, Frank's brother, who'd been convinced that Victor Pierce was actually Frank's killer, hence the final call to him in an attempt to identify him as the shooter. And Vince, wanting payback, had lured Victor, who he presumably was on decent terms with, before Benji rolled in and did the shooting. This theory, again, wouldn't be proven by police and prosecutors. You could say it was actually disproven if results speak the truth. Vince Benvenuto was charged and acquitted of his involvement in Victor Pierce's murder. He was, however, found guilty of other drug-related charges, and he passed away in 2015. And a second man, named Farouk, or Frank Orman, who we mentioned in Part 2, was also charged in Victor Pierce's murder, Allegedly, he was the driver of the White Commodore, something he's always steadfastly denied. Orman, who was associated with the Carlton crew, was convicted and spent the best part of a decade in jail for this. 
until it was discovered that lawyer X, Nicola Gobbo, who'd represented him, had tainted his defence, allegedly encouraging a key witness, whose evidence was central to securing Orman's conviction, to talk to police. It took a number of years, but Frank Orman's conviction was overturned in what was labelled a miscarriage of justice, and he was released actually just at the end of last year in 2020. A final crime on the 2nd of March 2001 that's often included in the gangland killings timeline is the shooting murder of security guard George Germanos in an Armadale park. In what was initially said to be a drug deal gone wrong, police later linked as persons of interest a crew of underworld figures headed by a well-known Melbourne rogue who is no longer with us named Robert Bluey Bob Mather. Police suspected that Germanos had bashed Mather's son in a nightclub in October of 2000, which apparently served as motive for this payback. Police also linked this crew to the 1984 murder of Mariana Lanciana and the 1999 execution of Demetrios Bellius, who I mentioned in the previous interlude. Another article I read suggested that his associate, Milorad Dapchevic, who I also mentioned last interlude, is presumed to be either dead or or to have fled overseas in fear for his life. So all of that in itself is obviously quite tragic and potentially another podcast episode in itself, but not connected to the main storyline of the Melbourne gangland killings, which we're following in this series. In part three of the gangland killings coming out sometime early next week, we're going to see a big increase in the bloodshed as Carl Williams and Benji Venyman's friendship blossoms alongside their newfound bond with Tony Mockbell, who potentially had motivations of his own, which may or may not have contributed to the expanding circle and growing list of victims. We'll talk more about all of that next week in part three of the Melbourne Gangland Killings.